to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finn Arne Jørgensen. And I'm Dolly Jørgensen. Calling in from the Netherlands uh, while I'm home in Stavanger. So, uh, and today for our 90th online book talk since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we have with us Stephanie Rutherford, who is Associate Professor in the School of Environment at Trent University in Canada. Uh, and she's here to discuss her book, Villain, Vermin, Icon, Kin, Wolves and the Making of Canada, which is a book that came out with uh, McGill Queen's University Press this year in 2022. So we shall just jump straight into it. So Stephanie, the floor is yours. Thank you. And, and thank you both for this really kind invitation. It's such a great series, not least of which um, I'm planning on using it for teaching. So. So it's really invaluable and it's a real pleasure to be included. So as Finnarn said, I'm a prof at Trent University along with Finus, who I think was one of your uh, speakers last year. Uh, and I work in the areas of environmental ethics, cultural geography and animal studies, I would say. And I've been working on this cultural history of wolves for about 10 years, it's been a long time. And Ellen can tell you, I was talking about it even when I was at McAllister with her a million years ago. Um, so that's what obviously what I'm going to talk about today. I'm zooming uh, to you from Peterborough Ngojiwang, which is uh, the home and territory of the Michi Sagig Anishinaabek in the lands that are covered by the Williams Treaties. And these words matter in not in a performative way, um, but because I think they shaped the questions that of this book. So, so I wanted to start in that good way. Um, so the book really tries to uh, take up the notion that nations are multi-species assemblages. Uh, and specifically, it tries to trace the relationship between settler colonialism and wolves in the lands that are now called Canada. Uh, and so what I claim in the book, or sort of the through line, um, is that wolves have been this really highly flexible metaphor uh, that's used to bolster particular notions of nationhood at particular times. Uh, but their shifting meetings kind of demonstrate uh, that the nation is this historically contingent um, assemblage that's characterized by instability. Um, but I was also interested in the ways in which affect figures into the making of nations. Uh, and so I frame each chapter around a specific affective register. So fear, disgust, passion, desire, ambivalence, and so on. And I suggest sort of following Sarah Ahmed that wolves are quote unquote sticky objects um, to which a range of affects kind of cohere. So they're kind of like these effective machines, at least that's the argument that I make in the book. And so I set about exploring the stories told about wolves and interactions with wolves, both historically and kind of in a contemporary sense, um, to think a little bit about how wolves figured into ideas of the Canadian nation. So that's the sort of basic thrust. And I looked at a whole range of stories of wolf attacks. I looked at documents on wolf bounties and predator control manuals. I looked at a lot of scientific research on wolves. Um, I looked at events like the Algonquin Park Wolf Howl and books like Ernest Thompson Seton's work, um, Wild Animals I've Known, and of course, Harley Mowat's Never Cry Wolf, which is kind of used this luminary of uh, Canadian nature writing. I also looked at things like the burgeoning business and wolf hybrids, wolf dog hybrids, um, the rise of the Eastern coyote. And then I end the book with indigenous teachings about wolves. So as I began to kind of look at all of these threads, it seemed to me that there was a story of both durability and change, right? So like the, the roots of history uh, in ways of knowing wolves that for me, it felt really important to try. And I was you know, curious about what that would look like. And so of course I can't really summarize the book, nobody can. Uh, so following Peter Coates, I wanted to focus on one piece that I think says something about the whole, which is um, the reception of wolf howls. Um, and the way that especially settlers, um, white settlers in Canada have heard wolves through time animates the book. And it also, I think, offers this valuable archive of, of wolf stories, right? So it's this important through line throughout the book. But of course, the lessons that white settlers um, read into howling um, were misapprehensions, right? That wolves don't howl to scare us is something I think is obvious, but also bears repeating. Uh, and in fact, they don't howl for us at all, right? Um, 
rather they're communicating with one another and the sort of tones and resonances in howls yet have these you know beautiful variations um maybe incomprehensible to us but they are messages to one another right um but as often happens these kind of misunderstood uh choruses um we're a home are a hallmark of a species that uh, creates these lifelong social bonds that you know white settlers kind of narrated themselves into a story that had absolutely nothing to do with them um and and so i looked at a whole range of stories about wolf howling uh specifically through rod and gun magazine in canada it's a strangely named um but very kind of the magazine had many many issues um for quite some period of time and it seems like one of the things um, that most often emerged in those stories was the confounding characteristic of the howl was that it was heard but not seen, right? So you didn't actually see the wolves, um, but you could hear them kind of prowling at, at night and they would leave, you know, paw prints or bones or blood and so on as evidence of their presence. Um, but, but it appeared to be sort of spectral in a sense, right? And this, I would, I suggest in the book kind of, unnerved settlers in ways that led to a kind of heightened violence against their foe. Um, and it also, I think, generated this anxiety in settlers um, because it was the surest sign that the colonial project remained incomplete, right? That the land hadn't been settled um, for the lives that they wanted to build. And so, so often the through line in these stories was sheer panic, right, of being made prey. Um, but there was also something else there that I wanted to pay attention to, which was as much as these stories sort of present wolves as haunting the borders of civilization, which I think they do, um, many of the stories also end in the death of a wolf, right? Um, and sort of the human protagonists of these stories uh, almost always killed the wolves that terrified them in the wild. Uh, and so this wolf incursion into settler society, uh, as well as I would say the inversion of settler superiority, this idea of settler uh, supremacy that such an incursion implies, was always ameliorated, or not always, but in many of these stories. And so I would contend that the stories aren't just warnings, so I think that they can be read as, as warnings of a wildness that remains untamed, um, but they were also pedagogies, right? Uh, narrating and kind of reiterating settler control over this sometimes unruly nation. So I'm just gonna share my screen for a second to show you, let's see. Okay, um, and so this kind of fear and disgust isn't, I would say, isn't gone. Um, it's here with us today. And so these two images, the one in the middle and the one at the bottom, are of the Fort St. John wolf hunt in BC that happened in 2012, that's described at the close of chapter one, um, that relies in part or almost entirely on many of the longstanding narratives that you find in the, the late uh, 1800s about wolf depredations as wolves are profligate wasters of game and we need to protect game from, from you know, the fact that wolves would drive deer and elk into extinction, that sort of thing. And it continues with various um, contests today. So here in the top uh, corner, you see a poster for the Creston Rod and, Gulf, uh, Rod and Gun Club um, for one of their hunts in, in 2019, right? So, so it's not to say that this is the question of durability and change, right? Like there's lots of ways in which these stories are still with us, even as lots of people um, really continue to, uh, or, or suggest that loving wolves is, is the thing that we should be doing. But there was always other responses to wolves that were, uh, that hinged on different sorts of affects. Um, so for instance, Ernest Thompson Seton professed this deep, deep love and admiration for wolves. Um, and I've, what I've called is, I've named it sort of passion in, in the book, uh, such that he called himself Black Wolf. He gave himself his own moniker. Uh, and he signed his name with a paw print. Um, but what I suggest is that he heard the howl as a kind of symbol of wilderness or wildness that was passing. And it was often connected to this colonial narrative of the quote unquote vanishing Indian. Um, and so Seton becomes this kind of ventriloquist, right? Through which uh, to announce both of their passing, right? That, you know, it's inevitable. It's lamentable, but inevitable. 
that um, that wolves will die. Similarly, Moet, um, in a more complicated way, I think, saw them as individuals, but he also relies on this sort of proleptic elegy um, of extinction to, to narrate his tale, I think, in, in complicated ways, at least in my view. But, the, but he is at the root, I think, of this burgeoning curiosity of, about wolves in Canada, not just him, but also uh, wolf researchers like Douglas Pimlott that give rise to, to the wolf hell, which is a picture I have, but I don't actually need to show it. Um, and so, and the wolf howl is like, it's, it's about two hours from here. You go and stand in this provincial park and a park ranger howls. And then everybody, there's about 2000 people there. Everybody is silent and waits to hear if they will howl back. They haven't had a wolf howl since 2013 though, because the wolves have moved deeper into the park. Um, but lots of people travel to have this experience and it's named a Canadian signature experience, right? To go and, and stand in the wild and, and listen to wolves howling. And so now I think when many of us hear wolves howl, um, we're often likely to feel the pinprick of loss. Um, that wolf howling is kind of read through this lens of elegy again, right? And, but it's this kind of nostalgic lament um, for the last of our remaining nature uh, in this time that we call the Anthropocene. And so when we hear wolves today in Canada, it's often because we have sought their company. Uh, rather than different kinds of responses in areas where they are still found in some densities. So what I sort of suggest in the book is that stories about wolves in particular and our particular reactions or effective responses or effective entanglements uh, had this nationing character to them. So that wolves were kind of seen as this biopolitical threat um, to settler colonialism and that legitimating uh, claims to the land had much to do with wolf annihilation or attempts at wolf annihilation. And that even lament at their loss was kind of inflected with this idea that the settler colonial state was inevitable. Um, and efforts at connection also have in some sense um, their roots in the reassertion of settler claims to the land in the form of wilderness. So, so it's um, what I trace in the book is kind of the relationship between um, settler colonialism, affect, and, and wolves. And the elimination of wolves was really tied, I think, to articulations of nationhood that were animated by these specific affects that, that I explore that do violence, right? They do violence to people, to animals, to lands, and to waters. Um, and tracing the effective entanglements of wolves and people has kind of shown this logic of settler colonialism, or at least I hope it has inflected through fear and disgust and, and sometimes desire, but it offered no place for beings that fell outside of this way of encountering the land, right? So, so it didn't give wolves any, and other animals uh, and plants as well, it didn't give them anywhere to go, right? Um, but indigenous understandings of human wolf relationships, I think have much to tell us uh, about respecting, what respecting the personhood of, of non-human life looks like in, in action. And so for many indigenous nations, and this is not to sort of uh, veer into some kind of pan indigeneity, but for lots of indigenous nations in the lands called Canada, um, the hell has been this communication, has always been this communication or even invitation um, to relationship. And, though, and so the stories about wolves as vermin and villain are the ones that settlers know well, they're the ones that I grew up with as a settler. Uh, and are most were most familiar with, but there were always other stories that existed before, simultaneous to uh, and after the pursuit of wolf extermination. And these teachings remain with us today. So, in in these different ways of knowing, wolves are understood as, mem as members of their own nations, um, with their own legal orders, treaties, diplomatic relations, and so on, to guide their relationships not just with people but with other plant and animal nations. And so, here I will show you this image. It's, uh, it's a beautiful one. So this is the wolf howl. But this is a wolf named Sakea. Um, and that's the Songhese, I, I may be saying it wrong, but it's a Songhese word for wolf. And this wolf lived alone for eight years without leaving this island that it swam um, about two miles to get to. So the wolf showed up in Victoria, which is uh, a big city in BC. And you can see the wolf is sitting on this island looking over um, to Victoria. Um, 
And so the wolf lived on this island on its own for, for eight years. It was a rather remarkable wolf in lots of different ways. Um, he has these sort of distinctive behaviors. He preyed primarily on or almost exclusively on marine mammals like otter and seal. He dug wells in the summer months to find sources of fresh water um, when none was available to him. And he howled frequently. I have a howl once again. Although lone wolves uh, are usually much less chatty um, because they fear drawing the attention of strangers. And so this photograph is by a, a photographer named Cheryl Alexander, who spent years tracking this wolf and studying and photographing and interacting with the wolf. And for her, Decay is this beautiful reminder uh, of wildness close at hand. But for the Songhees First Nation, this wolf was a relative, um, with some suggesting that it could be their re reincarnated former chief who had just died recently. And so in the story of Takea's kind of remarkable life, um, they advocated for the wolf at every possible turn as a relative until he left of his own accord um, in 2020. Uh, and nobody really knows why he left the island, but he was trapped and relocated um, quite a bit further north in an area uh, that wildlife officers thought would be good for the wolf but he was very soon after shot and skinned by a settler hunter in, in 2020. Um, so I bring this story to your attention um, because of the capacious way in which the Songhees first understood the chaos presence on their territories, uh, to their advocacy for and protection for his life, to the way in which they honored his death, right? So eventually they negotiated with the settler to recover his body. Um, and had all sorts of ceremony to, to celebrate his life. And I think what it speaks to is a re relational engagement um, with the non-human that is not premised on what animals lack, but what is gained when they are encountered as relatives. Uh, and their understanding of Takea as kin, either quite literally um, as the embodied spirit of their former chief or as part of the Songhees wolf clan, opened up specific obligations um, to help Takea thrive, to recognize him as an individual who could make his own choices uh, and deserves the space to do so. Um, so at every turn, the Songhees enabled, um, enabled these choices, right? Allowed him to live. And they knew that he was there for a reason, even if that reason was not accessible to us as people. Um, and so the way in which Takea was welcomed and known by the Songhees, um, what I suggest in the final chapter of the book, and I'm wrapping up here, isn't actually an anomaly, right? Um, but we find this across Indigenous nations that have relations with wolves in the lands known as Canada. So the question I sort of end the book with is what might it mean to be accountable, um, not just to wolves, but also to the people who have been fighting for them and for the rest of creation on Turtle Island? Um, and I suggest that accountability is not always about the absence of harm, uh, but about the recognition of kind of mutual obligation and respect uh, and solidarity, right? What, what might it mean to be in solidarity um, with, with non-humans, but also with humans? Um, and this is a posture that has been absent in settler colonial animal relations, as well as in relations among people. So what I kind of end the book with is this question of what justice and love look like for wolves um, in Canada. And what I suggest is what it might look like is decolonization on these lands, the bigger project of decolonization, uh, and indeed finding ways for, for us to thrive, all of us to thrive, um, actually demands that decolonization. So I'll end there. And I realize I should have stopped sharing, but I think um, the wolf is a much, much nicer picture than me. So thanks. Thanks so much, Stephanie, um, for this uh, great insights into how we might think about wolves and the relationships um, that we have with them, whether as settler colonials and what that relationship is and uh, the indigenous people of Canada. Um, I wanted to talk about the framing of this as a history of emotions. Um, mm. you know, since, since I wrote a book that was also about with history of emotions, um, and I see more and more people, of course, leaning that way. What it was that brought you 
to thinking about this as an emotional engagement um, and how that functions, um, you know, analytically for mm -hmm. you uh, in, in telling this story. Right, that's a great question. Um, well, I think, so what, me, what made me kind of, it seemed to me that relationships with wolves were so fraught on either side, right? Or they were so embodied almost um, that, you know, people had these really stark uh, reactions to wolves, either positive or negative, right? And um, whenever I go into a talk anywhere, inevitably there's like five or six people at the end of the talk who come up to me and tell me their wolf stories, right? They, you know, I ran into a wolf here and whatever, or these wolves ate my sheep and it's a terrible thing. Um, but they, they spoke in the language of emotion, right? Um, and it seemed to me, and even after reading John Coleman's book, right? And it was all about this kind of, how do we figure out, like, why do we have these specific reactions to these animals? It seemed to me that it was um, impossible to separate from affect and emotion, right? Because they were um, these, these kind of affective containers, right? That, that generate lots of, of different ways of knowing um, or reactions to them, right? That can, in some sense, almost, you know, Sarah Ahmed talked about this, the way in which um, affect becomes this kind of automatic and normative response. And I was kind of interested in tracing that, right? Because they seem to, I mean, initially I come from this sort of background of thinking a lot about biopolitics, but it seemed to me that it was about more than biopolitics or that we needed to have something other than biopolitics to, to tell the story. Now, I, um, Chris Pearson and I are writing an article uh, together and we're talking about affect. And it's a tricky thing, I think. And I'm, I'm curious from the, to hear from the environmental historians here. And I'm not an environmental historian, I must say, even though I sometimes pretend to be one. Um, about accessing affect in the past, right? Like it, it, it's a tricky analytically, and I, I think this is part of your question, right? It's a harder thing to access. Um, and I've, I've relied on folks like um, Monique Shearer to help me understand what that actually might look like. Um, but I think, and this is what I would raise as um, one of the, I would pr perform some sort of self-critique of my own book, uh, is that it's you can access emotion and affect for people, but it's much harder to find in the animals themselves, right? Um, and so what's the effective life of a wolf? I don't really know. Uh, and I think that's a, a big gap, right? Like there's a way in which my focus on stories can write the wolves out of the book altogether, um, which I worry about, right? I worry about quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if that entirely answers your question, but there did seem to be something about wolves that operated as this kind of generator of strong emotion that I was interested in, in paying attention to. Um, historically, in this kind of history of the present, like how do we get here? How do we get to this, this point where, um, you know, a hundred years ago, if I encountered a wolf, I probably would have been inclined to shoot it. But now uh, I'm more likely to go to a provincial park and, and wait three hours to hear if they'll howl back, right? Like that seems like a big shift over a short period of time. So I was, I was interested in kind of tracing what that looked like. All right, so I'd like to ask then uh, about this icon, the iconic uh, character or iconic character of the wolves that you also have in the title of your book. Um, because yes, I mean, they are icons in, in quite a few places. I mean, there's a huge wolf debate in Norway too, even though we hardly have any wolves left, but but it's still big. Uh, so, so one of the things I'm wondering about is like, why did the wolf become such an icon and not other animals? Uh, mm -hmm. And do you see, because you saw in a poster, you know, they had the cougar and uh, the coyote as well. So do you then see historically also similarities and differences to these other species that also are, you know, similar in the way they work? Uh, or is, mm -hmm. what is the special thing with the wolf? Yeah. That's a great question, thank you. I did see um, in looking at archival work uh, that the wolf and the bear were often put together in Canada as these kind of big predators, um, scary, you know, 
uh, all that sort of thing. So often they would, you know, they would be found together and there was um, some legislation that kind of put them together, like wolf, the Wolf and Bear Act, that sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, and, and this is probably my own kind of uh, emotional attachment to all things canine. I do think there is something specific to the wolf. Uh, and, and I think it is part uh, or related in part to this sort of co-evolution we have with dogs. Um, and so uh, our kind of, the veneration that we see now, uh, at least in Canada, right there, and it's, it's uneven, you know, I'm about to embark on this um, uh, nationwide survey on wolf perceptions in Canada with a, with a local environment, a national environmental group. Um, and we think we might know what's happening, but I don't know that we necessarily know what's happening. And I think, you know, we make a lot of assumptions about how rural people might feel about wolves and how urban people might feel about wolves. But I think those things are worth tracing too, because I do think they are assumptions. Um, but I think the wolf itself has this kind of storied uh, mythology around it, right? As like, and, you know, we could get into the whole conversation about lycanthropy and all of that, which is a whole other, you know, this becoming wolf, I think, is um, tied to human culture in really specific ways. So the, the shorter answer to your question, I think, is that, um, that they are tied to bigger predators. But for instance, cougars are so decimated in Canada, right, that you almost never see them, yet wolves remain, right? And in, in fairly decent numbers, you know, in, in British Columbia, and I see there's somebody here from BC. Um, in British Columbia, uh, there's lots of wolves, and in fact, they're killing them to ensure that mountain caribou can survive. So, so we're, they are still, they remain this kind of resilient presence on our landscape. Um, which allows us to sort of um, render them into an icon. And also there is, you know, there is something kind of magical about wolf howling, I think, that, that um, invites, uh, invites us to sort of think differently about the world. So they aren't that different, but I think we've made them different, right? They're a free container for all sorts of things. Yeah, to come back to these stories, right? They're, they're vessels through which you can tell stories. Now, you mentioned the, yeah, the other BC connection here. So Micah wanted to ask about gender. Um, mm -hmm. So is this elimination of wolves that you also see here then about men's grief or specifically white men's grief? Uh, is there a specific Canadian masculinity at work here? Could you say something on that? Yeah, that's such a wonderful question. Thank you for it. I do think, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head, Micah. It is about a kind of white, um, the assertion of a white masculine settler identity on, on the land and on the creatures that inhabit it. Um, and so there's this, I mean, there are stories about women, women's encounters with wolves, um, but they are few. I mean, there's so few as to be remarkable. Um, and this was really an, a reassertion or an assertion of, of masculine claim, white masculine claim to the land. Uh, and I think, you know, the trouble with wolves is that they sort of challenge that claim to the land, right? They, they unsettle uh, what is presumed to be settled. Uh, and so absolutely. I mean, there is one story in the book of um, a woman who uh, her husband goes off in search of a lost cow. Um, in fact, I opened the book with this. She goes, he goes off in search of a lost cow and brings the dog with him. And so leaves her with the children on the homestead. Uh, and this wolf comes, right? And it's kind of breaking down the door to try to eat her, her and the children. Um, so there are those stories, but yeah, as, as I said, they are, they are quite thin. And so, um, so this is absolutely a gendered uh, story about what the land what the appropriate uh, use for the land is and who can claim it. So yeah, thank you for that question. It's a really good one. Oh, I see more. Okay. Yes, we just saw a new question then from uh, come here on, you mentioned relationships between First Nations relationship with wolves. Uh, any thoughts about settler myths about wolves? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our so the, the majority of the book is, is about that. Right is about how settler 
uh, myths about wolves drove particular kinds of engagement that were only ever about violence. Um, and, and that, you know, myth-making uh, has a whole lot to do with the nation, right? It's the stories that we tell ourselves about the lands in which we live. Um, but it is also, it doesn't leave the land untouched, right? And so, so these particular kinds of stories about wolves um, rendered their lives expendable or in fact demanded their extermination, right? Uh, at almost every turn. Um, so, so my reading of Settler, and I mean, this is, this changes too, right? Like it's not, it's not um, monolithic, right? There's often other ways of, of encountering and, and knowing wolves. And, you know, it's interesting because up until about uh, the 1850s or 1860s in Canada, wolves were kind of, you know, accepted as part of the landscape of, of ranchers in the Canadian West, right? They were there, um, but, you know, you didn't want to sort of waste bullets on, on getting rid of them. Um, but that really changes as there's more and more as, you know, bison are replaced by cattle and, and so on. So, so that would be, you know, the through line that I would say about settler, settler myths and stories about wolves is that they, there's this undercurrent of anxiety uh, and a fear that necessitated wolf elimination. And I think it stayed, it's here to, it's, it's not gone, right? Settlers still often have this similar reaction to wolves today. So I was wondering about another type of, of settler mentality and that would be Western science. Hmm. So um, how does Western science and understanding of wolves and perhaps, yeah. you know, tracking of wolves and tagging wolves and collecting their DNA, um, does that factor into your story or into the ways that wolves are understood in Canada? Yeah, what a great question. So um, one of the chapters in the book is, is about the sort of scientific recuperation of the wolf in Canada, which happens, um, really starts in the 1950s and then, you know, is hyper accelerated, uh, you know, ironically by Farley Mowat, who is accused of kind of manufacturing um, large portions of his tail. Um, but there were some key folks in Canada, Doug Pimlott and others, who um, really engaged in important wolf research in the 1950s um, and advocated for their protection as a result of their research. And so they, they have, um, I think, have different stories to tell about wolves. Uh, and those stories have persisted. But I would say, you know, there's a way in which um, Western science can uh, make individuals into populations in ways that I, I sort of, you know, are understandable, right? Because if you're wanting to save a species from, uh, from extinction or a species is threatened or so on, you know, counting and knowing and rendering uh, non-human life into populations makes a lot of sense. Um, but it is a, a biopolitical move right, which removes the individual animal and their life ways from, um, from its context, right. Um, I also think, you know, there's this, I don't know if anybody's seen this eye documentary, uh, Bear 71, am I getting it right? Yeah, there's a way in which we invade animals sort of privacy at, at every turn um, with the justification of either curiosity Right? We want to see, we want to know what are their lives like, um, or um, to save them from us, right? And it, that feels a little, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's a terrible thing, um, but there's a thing to pick at there, I think, that, that we should pay attention to. I think the thing that I love about the Algonquin wolf howl is, um, is that it's so contingent, right? So, so people go, they listen to this talk, um, and then you go and stand by the side of the road and the park naturalist will howl and then everybody waits. And as I said, there hasn't been a wolf howl, like they haven't responded since 2013. And so it's, an, it's, it's to some degree, though certainly not all on their terms, right? That they, you know, there's a degree of protection around the park. And so that's why they gather there in large numbers. Um, and so if they stray outside of that park, then their life chances are much different than, than if they stay inside the park. 
Um, but they get to make their own choices in a way, right? Where we're not sort of running after them and radio collaring them and pulling their pups out of dens and you know pulling out their hair to sex them or whatever it is, right? Find out what's going on with them. Um, it allows them to live on their own terms. And I think there's something, uh, there's a bigger lesson for, for how we approach um, the non-human world in that. So I was wondering about then the, the management of these uh, wolves. I mean, you talked about the the hunt, which is its own thing, but there's also more the the scientific management of wolves that get too close also to people. Uh, yes. I mean, just thinking like here in Norway, we had the discussion of of Freya the walrus, um, yeah. who was shot uh, not very long ago, and and people are very upset about that. Uh, and I mean. This this is of course a a story that has many uh, I mean nice hooks I mean it's a named individual uh, it uses human infrastructures in acts that can be seen as in a way rebelling also against uh, people and of course the stupidity of people and not knowing how to manage this this wild and so do you see I mean, similar things with the naming of wolves in particular. We had the one example, uh, but is that common? Does that happen more often? And what are the consequences then? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, I, I see it less with wolves in Canada in terms of, you know, wolves are, are generally um, try to stay away from us as much as they can. But what you do see it with is the eastern coyote, which is the um, the hybrid that really emerged out of the wolf, the wolf bounty in Canada, right? So wolves normally will um, kill any coyotes in their territory, um, but their numbers had dwindled so much that they began to look on coyotes as possible mates. And, and in and around the early 1900s, you have the emergence of the Eastern coyote, which is this hybrid of wolf, coyote, and, and dog, right? It's like its own kind of, well, there's a debate whether it's its own species, but anyway. Um, and, and Eastern coyotes live in and among city areas. Uh, so for instance, um, in my office here at Trent, there's a pack of Eastern coyotes that live in the um, in our Trent nature areas, just about uh, two kilometers away. And right out near my house, there's a competing pack and they howl at night or you hear them. It's kind of this magical, you hold your dog closer, magical sort of thing. Um, and they are managed, I think, in very different ways than, than wolves who are um, kind of have, uh, people think about them in different ways. Like wolves are wildness and these things are a different, different story because they live close to us, because they eat our compost, because they eat our pets, including my own, uh, my outdoor cat was probably eaten by one <laughs> Eastern, I'm not laughing because it's funny, but because it was just like very, you know, oh, my cat got eaten by my research subject. Um, and so they intrude on our lives in different ways, right? And I think uh, that sort of management raises all kinds of, you know, even people who love wolves today who would want to see them protected um, and who might lament, you know, the sort of same situation that happened with Freya or with Cecil the lion or whatever it is have very different opinions about Eastern coyotes because they, they are boundary crossers by their very nature. Um, so, so I think those, the kind of tensions in how we understand what the right place is for certain kinds of animals is, is interesting in terms of what happens with regard to management. Now, there's, there are wolves who, and, and book, um, the epilogue of the book deals with one case of this, um, that do get too close to people. So there was a case of, um, of a university student who was doing his, um, like his placement, uh, geoengineering or geo, geosciences anyway, placement in, in um, northern Alberta. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's a wild place and there's lots of, of different wildlife around. And it's also got a huge dump. And there was a wolf that began to, and a series of wolves that began to frequent the garbage dump um, for food. And he, you know, it's he was excited to see these wolves. He wanted connection with them, and he went off on his own um, to take pictures of them, and also ostensibly to go for a walk. And um, he fell victim to a predatory attack. It's a big debate about whether it was a wolf or a bear. Um, 
but you know, there, there are ways in which we create these conditions of possibility for, for wolves to become habituated to us uh, that often lead to their death, that often leads to the death of many species who, like Freya, um, who come to understand us as a source of food or companionship or, or whatever that is. And it seems to me that the management response is always um, lethal, right? Uh, and there's gotta be better ways of, of thinking about that and encountering those animals who behave in ways that we don't uh, expect or anticipate. Well, so earlier I had uh, asked about, you know, this as a history of emotions and Gerard brought up in, in the comment that it's also a sensory history, mm -hmm. right? So you've, you've named several times this about howls and and sounds so wolves not being seen so can you talk more about the sensory aspect of the story and how that affects uh wolf human relations and of course it can be senses of, of sights that you that you mm -hmm. see something or you know other you know touching something or smelling something um but where that factors in yeah I love this question. This is this is a really wonderful question. So thank you for it, George. Uh, I think you're right. I, I probably haven't framed it quite in these terms, but I think um, it's why I chose the word affect rather than emotion. Though I think that it's a bit slippery, right? Those two terms, and lots of smart people have written lots of smart things about how those, you know, the distinction between affect and emotion isn't uh, entirely. It's certainly a porous one. Um, but I think affect to me does have this kind of sensory uh, sort of embodied response to it that I was was interested in paying attention to. And so the howl for sure is part of that, right? Like the sort of hearing but not seeing. Um, but I think it's also about like this kind of, you know, lots of early settlers had this embodied response to the prospect of being eaten. Right, and so that's not necessarily a touch thing, but that is an embodied response, right? Yeah, it's like a, um, and you know, there's all sorts of like feelings of fear and disgust and and all of that that emerge from this idea of of becoming prey. Um, so I think it is in some sense, and then there is the sort of you know, uh, touch less though I think lots of people um, have touched wolf pelt dead pelts right so they you know there is a kind of um, you know in the same way that you you lovingly uh, pet your dog there is that kind of you know you, you sort of feel that connection in, in touching um, the pelt of a wolf but I think yeah so I think the short answer is for me it's it's impossible to separate affect and and um, embodiment and sensory response. I think it's all packaged into and in, hardwired in some sense. So that makes it sound universal, which I don't think it is. Um, response uh, to the presence of wolves, right? And there is all this, like, you know, if you, if you hear a wolf howl or if you imagine that there's a presence of a wolf, your body does very specific things, right? Even if you love them, you know, your hair stands up, like you're, you get goosebumps, right? You have this sort of rush of adrenaline in your body that all of that happens without intention, right? It just sort of sort of happens. And so um, the linkages between affect and the body, I think are, are multiple, right? And sort of paying attention to those, I think is an important thing to do. So you draw up this, um, I mean, span from the, uh, the wolf as something like frightening, right? To the, the, wolf as sublime in a way you know with the house and so on um and you're also kind of doing it as you know this frightening was in the past whereas the sublime is now so i'm wondering about where this idea of sublime i guess among settlers first came do you have any any clues uh, or stories about, you know, who was it who started then, mm. in a way, identifying themselves with wolves, thinking of the, or, yeah, doing the howl also for, for response, and so on. Mm. Yeah, I like that question. And I will say, I mean, I, I present too neat a narrative in the book, in a sense, right? Um, and so it's sort of a heuristic in that in that sense, because of course there was always multiple ways of encountering wolves. 
Um, I don't know that I can point to sort of an origin story for this idea of, of wolves as sublime creatures, but I would say um, that Ernest Thompson Seton sort of is, is the figure in the book who really embodies that way of knowing the wolf as, you know, um, because he did, he did really admire them um, in a whole series of ways for their wildness, right? For, for what they symbolized. I, I don't think he actually um, understood wolves as creatures of their own right, but he certainly understood them as a means to kind of lament the loss of wilderness, right? And so, so if the sublime is kind of tied to this wilderness writ large, um, then for Seton, the wolf really embodies that right? Like it was, you know, this sublime creature, but, but he couldn't quite get past his own, um, he couldn't get out of his own way, I think, to, to understand them as more than a metaphor um, for the loss of, of wildness, this inevitable loss of wildness. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't have an origin story for you, if there ever is such a thing. Um, but I think I would sort of, in the book, I talk about that kind of move to the sublime with, with Seton, and then, um, Farley Mowat takes it up too, right? Um, and, you know, has this very kind of loving relationship with the wolves that he encounters in, in Canada's North. Um, and he also sort of sees them as this, you know, the last of the remaining wild. So yeah, I'd, I'd place it with them. Well, thinking about Canada and the, you know, settlement patterns in it, um, you know, you mentioned this divide between settler and indigenous in terms of thinking. But so Micah asks, is there also, is there a rural urban divide or is it a north south or an east west, particularly because I guess the way that Canada, if you will, becomes settled um, yeah. that may change the, the wolf, human wolf relations across the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great, it's a big place. Right? So it's a, it's a good question. Um, I do think there are differences. Um, and certainly, you know, the kind of wolf love that we, we see emerge with the environmental movement in the, um, or the sort of Western environmental movement that we see in the 1970s is really urban, right? Like it's, you know, um, it's not rural people that are going to listen to wolves howl because they can probably hear them howl when they want. Um, it's, it's people like me, right, who, who grew up in a city uh, and, and have, you know, my experience of nature as a kid, I grew up in Toronto, uh, my experience of nature as a kid was in a channelized river that had muskrats, and it was like, it was magical to me, um, but it wouldn't be what most people understand as nature, and so, so the folks who are going to the Algonquin Wolf Howl uh, are a lot like me, urban, educated, uh, likely to donate to environmental causes. And rural folks, I think, um, I think it would be a mistake to kind of essentialize the rural experience. I think there's lots of variability in terms of how um, rural people encounter wolves and coyotes, especially, and I'm more familiar with that in Ontario. Uh, I'm working on a paper with, with a colleague and we're talking, we're interviewing some farmers uh, who have varied responses to specifically coyotes who are more likely to prey on their sheep. Um, and, you know, some of them really seek out non-lethal means to, to manage um, these populations, mostly because they're like, well, they were here first, right? So we, we have to figure out how to live with and among um, all of the creatures of this land. So, so I wouldn't want to essentialize the either urban or rural folk, but I think you're right. Um, you know, the people who are more likely to encounter wolves and coyotes every day uh, have a different kind of relationship. One that can be, um, you know, urban people can be a lot more generous with things that they're never going to encounter or, uh, or creatures who aren't going to affect their livelihoods, right? Um, so I think there is a divide in that sense. And that's what this big survey is in part about, is to, to find out these differences. Um, so for example, in Canada's East Coast, wolves were extirpated ages and ages ago, right? So they're sort of wolf stories don't really exist in, in quite the same way. And those relationships are, are different in the North. You know, there's, there's lots and lots and lots of wolves. So, so I think it does, I think you're right, Micah, to suggest that it varies across geography. And I think it also varies, the way it does has everything to do with proximity, 
um, how how uh, likely is it that we are to encounter a wolf, right? I think that has a lot to do with how we can imagine their lives and how we can imagine our lives implicated with theirs. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask about this uh, this survey that you mentioned. Um, I mean, you also got someone into, you know, basically what's next in wolf research? Uh, what do we need to know? So uh, are you you only doing this survey? Or are you continuing in, in wolf research? Yeah, it's, well, it's interesting. I've sort of, you know, I... Uh, yes and no, I would say. Um, so my new project is about environmental justice um, and and multi-species climate justice. So so wolves are there, but they're not. It's not only wolves that I'm focusing on now. Uh, although I love the wolves, I think it's time for me to to move on from them. And I'm sure like other people are doing amazing work on on wolves, um, humanities, social science, and and scientific work. Um, but that's really, you know, so so the thing I was left with at the end of this book is, um, so what next, right? Like, what do we do? How do we make life more? I mean, you know, we're in the context of this climate crisis that um, feels like, you know, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but, you know, my, I teach my students and they are entirely um, petrified about what our world is going to look like. Uh, and so I'm interested in, in this new project on environmental justice. It's community-based and it's, it's working with um, two local organizations to map environmental injustice and environmental racism in Peterborough, and then also to understand the stories who, of people who experience environmental harm. Uh, I'm interested in sort of taking up that, so what do we do about it question? And then I also have this other piece on um, multi-species climate justice. So, so how can we um, build livable futures that are probably in my view gonna be indigenous led um, to, to have futures which are livable for all, right? And then, and then this other survey about, um, you know, I can't leave the wolves behind altogether, right? Uh, so, so coming to understand uh, how you know this broad process, and I don't know how this is going to look. You know, I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a lot of things, including a social scientist. So, there's a social scientist on the team who's going to you know design this nationwide survey. Um, but really accessing, I think, people's understandings, like not beginning from the assumptions that I think, um, you know, lots of us, including me, carry about who likes wolves and who doesn't. And I'm sure you've seen um, in recent months, there's been a whole series of articles, one in The New Yorker uh, that was entitled Killing Wolves to Own the Libs um, as part of this kind of, you know, cultural politics in the States, uh, which is, you know, so deeply polarized, right? So, so I wanna kind of access some of that, like to understand how wolves are still this sort of cipher for all kinds of politics, but also to maybe um, disrupt what we think we know about people's relationships with wolves. So, so that's the three, environmental justice, multi-species climate justice, and, and a survey of wolves are the three things I'm working on right now. Thanks. I mean, it sounds really interesting. I'm definitely looking forward to you know, seeing the outcome of this work. Uh, quite, quite important. So I think we should wrap up now. So um, I'd like to just uh, extend a thanks then to Stephanie Rutherford uh, for discussing the book Villain, Vermin, Icon, Kin, Wolves and the Making of Canada. So it's out now with uh, McGill Queen's University Press. So thank you, uh, Stephanie, and thank you to everyone in the audience as well. Thank you so much.